going to continue with commentaries and explanations regarding the actions and teachings given by Jesus and following the text of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, accordingly, I am trying to explain from a yogic standpoint, from a metaphysical standpoint, from an energy standpoint, and others. Also, I'm trying to explain it as laws of the universe, understanding the context in which these things happen, <clears throat> to explain some of these formidable words and formidable actions which uh, Jesus left us with. As uh, we consider in the world of yoga, Jesus as being one of the great spiritual teachers of humanity, a divine model, an avatar or a divine incarnation. So, last week I was speaking extensively about the fact that Jesus, at the very start of his mission, he almost produced the circumstances, because he chose to do this, to take this path, that he reached to the place where he was tempted. Again, for Buddha, the temptation came in the end, because Buddha is not labeled as having been an avatar. Buddha is a human being who went through being a frog and a fish and whatever he had been in the laws of evolution, who incarnated through thousands of different forms, who at some point became human, and then he became an old soul, like even as a human being, he incarnated hundreds and even thousands of times, becoming a more and more evolved, a more and more complex soul, until one day Buddha was like 99% enlightened. He was what the later Buddhist tradition would call a bodhisattva, a would-be Buddha, almost a Buddha. <clears throat> and then, because Buddha was a soul that had 9,999 lives behind him, not all of them human again, but because he was almost there, then it took a little bit. Buddha was like gunpowder, ready to catch fire. He was ripe for the last step. It was like the last drop which would fill the contents of his spirituality. So Buddha was this close, then the revolution happened when he was 29 years old or 30, then he exploded by seeing an old man, a sick man, and a dead man, which everybody had seen before, but they didn't have the same effect as with Buddha. And when Buddha caught fire, he just went and practiced different practices until he found the one which was the most convenient. <clears throat> and then he practiced, I don't know how many hours per day, under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And there, in six years, he reached Nirvana. And just before he reached Nirvana, because when he would reach Nirvana, he would become something else. It's like a graduation. It's exactly like somebody in the smaller realm would be anointed as a priest. And tomorrow, if you are a priest, 
people will bring you their babies and they will say, baptize my child in the name of God. Or as a priest, people would give you their confessions. As a Christian priest, people would give you their confessions. They'll go in the confessional and tell you all the incredibly horrendous things that they have done or thought in their lives that you couldn't have done yesterday. Because yesterday you were not anointed. So in the moment when you are anointed, your responsibilities, your social integration changes completely. And that's why when Buddha is not enlightened, he is at the best a very wise person. But in the moment when he becomes enlightened, he's going to be something else. And the history has shown very clearly that indeed Buddha had become something else. And therefore, when he was about to make this step, there came the last temptation. In the Buddhist mythology, Mara, which would be an equivalent of the devil from this Christian story with Jesus, Mara came and tempted him three times. And Buddha, as luckily would have it, he did not give in. And Buddha rejected firmly, like Jesus, almost fiercely, rejected those, and then he became a Buddha. For Buddha, it happened in the very last stage. And then he became the Buddha, and he preached, and he did whatever he did. I hope you are a little bit knowledgeable of the life of Buddha. If not, you can find online documentaries about the life of Buddha, which will illustrate what kind of person he was and what he did. For Jesus, we are not aware of what spiritual practice he did. As the metaphysical opinion runs, Jesus was enlightened already from before, because he was a divine descent, an avatar. But even as a divine descent, as I discussed two satsangs or three satsangs ago, most of the metaphysicians believe that that little six-year-old child or ten-year-old child didn't quite know uh, what the heck is happening. Why am I such a weird child? Why am I so attracted to God, to religion, to this? And therefore that it took some time, it took some process for Jesus to kind of go and say, oh, 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 oh my God, oh, that's who I am. Okay, you know, like to come back to himself. As I said, this thing that some people have a sort of a full awareness of who they are, if they are spiritual, it's very rare in the history of spirituality, and it's also very counterproductive. Like the people who had this, like Ma Ananda Mai and Jiddu Krishnamurti, they became some of the weakest teachers of their century. They became lousy teachers because they have never experienced in their brain, in that body, the state of ignorance and confusion which other human beings do experience all day long. And thus they thought that, oh, well, it's simple, you can do it, it's just as simple as that. It isn't, not for the common mortal. And that's why it is expected by seeing the resonance of Jesus, that Jesus had this momentary, that means 10-15 years of forgetfulness, and then at some point or another, what did he do to open his Sahasrara, to clean his heart, to kind of get back to it? We don't know. Maybe some local teachers, 
Maybe he was part of the group of the Essenes. Maybe he went to Egypt and was taught some hermetic methods from the Egyptian lore. Maybe he traveled to India, as some people claim. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference, really. Because Jesus, in the moment when he becomes a teacher, a world teacher, he never says, as my guru, uh, I don't know whom, uh, uh, Common Sense Ananda told me five years ago, this is what you should do. Like, he never resorts to any scaffold, to any previous system of teachings on which he himself has built out himself up. He, whatever he has used in those years of his youth, then he drops it, and then he is fully himself for the mission for which he is ascribed. And therefore, for Jesus, it's like the Enlightenment came before, but then he somehow procrastinated. There are stories, for example, which say that he went to India when he was like 25 years old, because this story is when he was 30 already. And when he was 25, he went to India. And in India, he already acted like a prophet and like an enlightened being. And he did some spiritual work in India, where miraculously, he had a little bit of the same shit coming to him. Like, people liked him, but people were also afraid of him. And uh, many people went against him because he was too much black and white. Like, you do it or you don't do it, you know? <clears throat> it's kind of like, like, for him, spirituality was a hundred percent thing. If you say, I'm a spiritual person, then you can say, how much? No? It's like, you cannot say that a woman says, hey, are you pregnant? Uh, kind of. No, there is no kind of. Why you are or you are not. You know, it's like this thing is not a thing that you can, that has shades of gray. And thus, in the case of Jesus, if he was active before and he had spiritual enlightenment before, he did not feel that the time was up. We don't know. We cannot fathom exactly how the time came for up for him. We just know that at some point, he was back to Israel, to Palestine, to Judea, and then Galilee, Samaria, all those provinces, and there, he suddenly, when he visited John the Baptist, he felt like on. Things are on. Now it's rolling. And then, although this was not like, was Jesus tempted when he reached his states of Samadhi when he was 22 years old? Maybe. We never have any witness about that. The story doesn't know. We don't know if ever he talked about it to his own disciples. Maybe he was a very secretive person. And they probably asked him, what did you do five years ago? Where were you? And he simply said, I don't wish to talk about that. Or something. You know, for a reason or another, he didn't want to bring other influences and other things. He just wanted to do this straight job right there, like whatever I have been five years ago, right now I'm here with you in this environment, and this is actually my main mission on the planet Earth, and therefore here I am. 100%, don't ask me silly questions about what was I doing eight years ago in Egypt or in India, or it doesn't matter what I was doing. It's not relevant. 
I am here and I can tell the dead people to stand up and they will walk and be alive again. Then why, what do I need to give any explanation about what I was doing eight years ago? It's just blah, 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 blah. It's just empty talk, you know? Fact is that I can put my hands on a blind person and the blind person will start seeing, you know? That's who I am and that's what I did eight years ago. So for Jesus, this history doesn't seem to be important. He doesn't get lost in things like, what is your lineage? Where do you come from? Because Jesus is simply too much. He's too big. He is, he's simply an avatar, and his mission is full on, and therefore there is, there is only right now. And then Jesus has this moment, which is inexplicable for us others, where he feels now. Now. And then when he feels this, then he feels, because he is such a religious person, he feels he wants to, one last time, bow down to God. He wants to ask for permission. He wants to make a purification. He wants to make a consecration. He wants, and for him, this consecration, purification, is this extended fast. He does this 40-day fast, which is a real big fast, and in this fast, as I said last time, inevitably together with the purification and the threshold, there appears a sort of a last moment temptation. Like now you are going to shatter the world, but before you shatter the world, answer me three questions. And therefore, what he calls the devil, either it's called Mara, or it's called Satan, or it's just, you can, we can speak about so many things. Uh, fact is that Jesus has it subjectively like this, that there is a temptation. How do we know? He probably spoke about it to others later, because they asked him, how did you start this, or what happened? Because he was alone, as far as we know, so there's nobody who can witness this except himself. And the devil, whatever the devil would mean, you know, we spoke about this a little bit, and this is a... If I open that door, we can go and speak hours and hours of all the metaphysical things there. We don't do that. We do a little bit of that when we speak in, the, in our workshops about art of dying, about metaphysics, and in the workshop about invoking angels. In those three workshops of Agama, we have a little bit of information about the lower realms of existence, Hell's demonic entities, but not very much, but a little bit just to be able to create a complete picture as yogis like Yogananda and Shivananda and others wanted to give it to the world. So, he is tempted three times, and uh, as you would hope and cross fingers, he is not a fool, he is not under the illusion. Now, the second temptation with which I was in the middle of it when I finished last time was a temptation that this devil, or whatever it is, it promises to give him universal power over the planet Earth, to make him the king of the world. Funny thing is that Jesus, anyway, is today presented as the king of the world. If you go in Christian churches, he is there holding the book of life in his hand and blessing the world. And the Greek name for this icon is called Jesus the Pantocrator. Crator, like in aristocrat or something, the leader, and Panto means of everything, everywhere, like pantheism. No? So Pantocrator means Jesus, the king of the universe. 
know, Jesus, the Lord of everything. It's like the images of Ishvara. Shiva, Ishvara. Shiva, the Lord. Coming exactly from the heart, this lordship of the Mahasiddhis in yoga. And uh, therefore, Jesus, he actually refuses, and that's a very great lesson to be drawn later, because although the devil promises to make him king of the world, of course the devil would have cheated him, because that's what the devil is, an eternal liar, a cheater and a liar. And it is exactly as that Hollywood movie, which you should see, it's a great comedy but with very deep meanings, which is called Bedazzled, where a guy keeps on making deals with a female devil, where she promises him if he gives her his soul forever, then she will fulfill seven of his wishes, whatever the wishes are. He can ask to be the king of the world and so on. And she promises to fulfill those wishes. And every time when he does it, there is something which he forgot to mention. And the devil always exploits exactly that flaw. Exactly that flaw. So basically he gets nothing. He asks, the devil is fulfilling his wish, but with such a twist that he can't get what he really wanted. So in the end he got to the conclusion that he sold his soul for nothing. For nothing. So this is exact. Jesus knows the trick. He knows that the universal power is only with the cosmic consciousness. And whatever demonic entity which can have a huge Ajna Chakra and create things and manipulate realities, compared to the cosmic consciousness is still nothing and doesn't hold the reality. Doesn't hold the actual potential of things being true. Because God is the truth with a capital T. And therefore there can be no truth in whatever demonic figment of or fiction which is proposed. He knows. And therefore he flatly dismisses all these demonic things. Buddha is experienced. And he also refuses. But Jesus refuses it in a more like you know, it's like it's a kid's game, you know. It's like you are so ridiculous, I don't even want to talk to you, you know. It's like you are an idiot. He's like coming from a full-on position, and even if it's a, like a formality, he still does go through those three tests. And the first test was the test of materialism. That God said, you are hungry, and if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus always answers, Quoting the scripture, you know, he says, I can't, I don't even need to invent my own excuse for it. It has been written already. It's written. You are breaking the elementary scriptures, you know, like the Yama and Niyama, like the Ten Commandments. Like, so Jesus says very clearly, man does not live on bread alone. This is a very materialistic tendency that we have in spirituality that we try to use spirituality to make bread and butter. We try to use spirituality to fulfill our materialistic needs. Most people are dire materialists. And they try to use spirituality only as an excuse to that. Like if you have to stay here for hours and hours and wait 
and get hungry and so on, you'd say, no, it's too much. I'm going to buy myself a sandwich in 7-Eleven. And then the Jesus would come, give the teachings in five minutes, and when you come, you say, oh, I missed him. He passed by. It's like Santa Claus, you know, you never catch him red-handed, you know. He's always not there. No, and it's just because when you went to eat a sandwich. So Jesus says, don't go and eat a sandwich. Never. Like the Boy Scouts. You have to be prepared all the time. You have to be stubborn. You have to be 100%. This materialism is so developed. In yoga, we see it all the time. Like many yoga teachers and even gurus, they were unable to explain properly some things about the chakras and the energies and the planes of the universe. And then they started talking bullshit to just excuse it. Like there is a famous yoga teacher whose name I don't want to say because he did many good things in yoga. But at some point, because he didn't have the science of chakras developed well enough, he starts telling that the chakras are just nervous plexuses in the marrow of your spine. So the chakras are nerves in the spine. How do you expect, how do you explain with nerves in your spine? the knowledge of the past, present, and future, the meditation, the eight mahasiddhis, just because you activated some nerves in your spine. That's a very, very reductionist, it's a very, very simplifying, and it's a painfully stupid way of reducing things. But uh, um, um, if we don't say that the chakras are nerves in the spine, uh, then... Uh, then, uh, then won't people believe that we are just some idealistic mystics? Yes, let them believe that we are some idealistic mystics and let them kiss our asses. What's the big problem with that? Why do I need to be a crowd pleaser? I can speak my truth. I can give my teachings. Those who can get it, can get it. Those who can't get it, they don't have the karma for it yet. You know, they are not prepared for it. Where is the big problem? Because even Jesus, who was the Son of God, 50% of the people said, crucify him, crucify him. He's an asshole. <laughs> the crowd asked for him not to be saved by comparison to Barabbas. So if Jesus didn't please even 50% of the population in the plaza, then do you think I can? <laughs> like I'm far, far below the guru quality of Jesus. And if Jesus could do only 49%, and I can probably do 10% or something, or less. No. So it's like, we don't, we don't try to do the impossible. So, in this way, there is this materialistic tendency that people, you know, one of my friends was a genius in mathematics, physics, electronics, you know, and it's, it's very rare for me to say such a thing, because I have been at levels where people were very, very well developed in these fields of science. And this guy, like in the second year of the university, which was taking five years, a five-year study for a master's degree in electronics, this guy, the teachers, the most advanced teachers in the university, they shrugged their shoulders and they said, Oprish, that was his name, they said, we can't teach him anything anymore. He knows as much as we do. Like he was a student, a sophomore, a student in the second year. And he already, the teacher said, this guy is a professor already, you know. He knows everything. Like he was doing so much self-study and he was so intelligent. He was attracted to yoga. 
He came and did yoga. I made some demonstrations to him because he was a very skeptical person with a very intelligent mind. So he took it very difficult because he was afraid, like, is this some cult? Is this some sect? It's like a typical person with a strong intelligence. Finally, he saw that it was working. He did a bit of yoga. He did a bit of tantra. And then at some point with his family, he had the opportunity to go to the United States to emigrate, which was in the communist times in Eastern Europe. And so he said to go. And we told him, are you going to continue your yoga practice and so on? And his answer was, I'm going to make a million dollars, invest them with 5% interest, which will give me $50,000 per year in interest without touching my investment. $50,000 per year means $4,000 per month. This was in 1980-something, so it was much more than today. So he said $4,000 per year will be more than enough to live a decent life wherever I am in this world. So as soon as I make a million dollars, I'll invest them 5%, and then I will immerse myself in yoga. Uh -huh. When I met him 20 years later, he had a Californian villa with a swimming pool and so on, and he was way beyond a million dollars. Like this guy did miraculous work in electronics. He was one of the highest paid experts in the United States. And then I said, what about yoga? Like, did you forget your original pledge? Because now you've passed a million dollar mark a long time ago. Where is the yoga? And he told me, I'm 45 years old. I saw that uh, Shakespearean movie called The Lion in the Winter with Henrik II or something, which is one of the most cynical movies which exists in the history of cinematography. If you want to see some real cynical Manipura, watch The Lion in the Winter. And uh, then he said, I'm wasted. I'm done. Because the Henrik IV was 45 years old, or the second or something, he was 45 years old and he said, I'm older than the Pope. In those days, people died at the age of 40. And Henrik II said, I'm older even than the Pope. My life is gone. Like at 45, he considered himself old. He was older than the Pope of that day. <clears throat> so this guy answers to me the same thing. Blinded by this thing. Blinded by this thing. This is, if you choose first the bread, and then the word of God. Like Jesus says, it doesn't matter that I'm hungry. Bread is a collateral. God will give me something. I will not die of starvation. It's just the fear and the paranoia, the sense of survival from Mulakhara, which makes me be afraid. And then I'm saying, what shall I do? Do my sahasrara or earn my bread? Uh, first you have to earn your bread. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the old prophet said. And that's not what Jesus says at some other time in the Bible when he gives another teaching or several times in the same respect. So the first this slide, this uh, hitting back of Jesus was that the devil says you are hungry and make the stones turn into bread. And Jesus says, why would I do that? I can fast one more day. You know, it's like if I don't have bread, then I'll fast, I'll make 41 days. I'll make 45 days of fasting. 
I don't need to do any miracle with the bread just because I'm a little bit hungry. Of the 40 days, you're not a little bit hungry. It's terrible. But still, no, he simply said, no, the man doesn't live only with the, uh, only on bread, on bread alone. By which he means, what about the fact that I'm sitting here and I'm in ecstasy? What about the fact that I'm sitting here and I'm communing with the cosmic consciousness? That feeds me much more than if I would make some bread. Making some bread is a pathetic little thing. You know? But when you are materialistically oriented, it suddenly looks like it's very important. You know, you have to do your things. So, the first flashing back of Jesus is, don't give me this materialistic predominance. This is... Uh, Chogyam Trungpa, who was a very controversial modern master, a Tibetan Lama, he was sharp as a needle, he was sharper as a razor, he had an excellent Ajna Chakra, and from that excellent Ajna Chakra, in his controversial way, he wrote a few amazing things. And one of the writings of Chogyam Trungpa is cut, is called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Because in his Tibetan Ajna, he looks around at all the New Age people, it was the hippie years and so on, and Chogyam Trungpa says these people are just fake materialists. They are materialists with a sheepskin on top. They pretend that they are spiritual, but actually when they go for spirituality, it's just another form of materialism. It's a disguised materialist which pretends to be spirituality. Because these people are accumulating, are greedy, are possessive, are this, are this and that. And many of them in their hearts, they don't have any detachment. They didn't give up anything. No, they are very attached and for them spirituality is a hobby. Like, it's not God which comes first and everything else after. It's everything else which comes first. And God is somewhere on a shelf, maybe, maybe, maybe also will have a bit of that. So therefore, there is a spiritual materialism, the attitude of materialism without aparigraha, without detachment, taken into spirituality. And this is that you find people that either accumulate books, knowledge, initiations, money, all sorts of things, while they pretend they are spiritual. <coughs> and thus, this, according to Jesus, this is a disguised form of it. And he symbolizes by this, man does not live on bread alone. Like, stop bringing this to me like it's so important. It's not. It's, yes, I'm hungry, and I can get even more hungry. But I'm in communion with God, and that's the only thing which matters. So Jesus sets the priorities, Clearly. The second temptation, which I commented quite a bit last time, and which opens a world of connections, <clears throat> is that the devil proposes to give him power. He says, show him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. The condition is very simple. Sell your soul expressed here, if you worship me, like forget that there is a cosmic consciousness, because the cosmic consciousness doesn't pick up the red phone, doesn't seem to be interested in anything, 
but I am here very present with you and I can give you power and I can give you anything you dream of. For many people, this is what enlightenment is. Many people think that if you earn enlightenment, then you are going to have everything you want. And in a certain way it is so, but in India and in Tibet, these are two different things. There is a magical stone called Chintamani. And Chintamani gives you whatever you want. It's magic. No? It's not enlightenment. Enlightenment is not the stone of Chintamani. The stone of Chintamani is a magic tool, and enlightenment is something else. It's not a coincidence that in Kali Yuga, where the negative forces are so strong, you can see that actually spiritual beings have a lot to endure. Buddha himself, because you'd say, okay, Jesus was this fire and all special circumstances with the Romans, with this, with that. But Buddha, no, Buddha was a logical teacher, mental, clear, pure, discriminate, and so on. He told to people some uncomfortable truths to hear, but not raving like Jesus, and you know. And still Buddha, they tried to assassinate him at least three times. Buddha escaped more than three assassination attempts. And even Buddha attracts so much hate and fear and this Inkal Yuga. So then it's like you got enlightened and are you going to have everything you want? Well, Buddha didn't have the sympathy of the kings. Buddha, Buddha didn't have richness. Buddha didn't have comfort. And then it becomes a real formidable thing, you know, like what are you going to choose? The power of this world the money of Warren Buffett and that kind of thing, or are you going to choose to be like Ramana Maharishi and be a nobody and have nothing? Like this was the statement of Yoga Swami, a great yogi from Sri Lanka, who said, I am a nobody. He said, I'm a coolie, I'm, I'm sweeping my own floor. Like when do you come to see a low caste sweeping his own floor? And they said, no, but he said, yeah, but because I accept that I am nobody, then I am everything. And I've done, because I have nothing, I have everything. But you cannot understand that. Precisely because I gave up everything, then I have at my disposal everything. But in an indirect way, afterwards, afterwards, like Jesus refused to be made king of the world. But today, on his cross, when you see icons with Jesus, it says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then he is presented as the Pantocrator, the Lord not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. So he is King, while he refused it. Because it was given to him not by the devil, but afterwards by the Divine Consciousness, by earning merit, by earning the spiritual merit, and precisely because of this detachment. Like he simply said, why do I need to be a king? Why do I need power and splendor and all this? How many people would not be tempted by power and splendor and luxury and comfort and glory and recognition and not to have all the power and all the glory and all that? 
99.99% of the people would. Very seldom you find people who are wise enough who would renounce such things. I remember about hearing the case of, I think it was a German man who won the European lottery. He won like 50 million euros or something. There were no euros, there were Deutschmarks in those days, like 30 years ago. And he gave it all away. And the journalist asked him, are you sick in your head? Why would you give 50 million Deutschmarks like this? And he simply said, because I'm a bit old and I've lived a long life and I'm looking around and I have one conclusion that people, I've observed my friends, my family, everybody. And I've simply observed the simple thing that the people who have lots of money are not at all more happy than the people who don't have any. Sometimes quite the opposite. What a detachment. Who of you would win in the lottery 50 million tomorrow? and then you'd give it up because it, it means nothing. That's why I say, this is a test for Jesus. It's a test for a Buddha and a Bodhisattva, that you are given all that, and you just dismiss it and say, no, I don't need it. I'm not going for it. So, Jesus says, especially because the prize is that you want me to worship you, to give up my spiritual ideals, and you want me to sell my soul, and like, and that for what? For 60 years of comfort? Like, Jesus was 30. Maybe he would live up till 70. So he had in front of him 40 years of comfort, and then his soul will go to hell? Why is it worth it to have 40 years of nice life, and then go to hell forever? or for an undefined duration of time. Completely like Jesus is lucid, and he knows this is a Fata Morgana. This is just a dream. It's just you are selling me an illusion. You know? And there he answers again. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Like he simply says, There is one God. I'm focused on that. You come and tell me, no, no, me, me, worship me. Like he says, even if I'm tempted, there is a principle, there is a law, there is a saying. And that saying is only one divine consciousness. Don't confuse yourself by thinking there are several or something. There isn't. There is just oneness. And thus, Jesus is slapping him back. With this. Of course, many people, this is opening the door to so many things, <clears throat> because people say, but if Jesus says so, then can you worship Kali? Like there is God, who might be Shiva or something, and then there is Kali. <coughs> Should you worship Kali? Aren't you a blasphemer? Aren't you an idol worshiper? If you understand correctly the tantric tradition of India and Tibet, Kali is not God. And therefore, you are not replacing God with Kali. God and Kali both exist in a hierarchical relationship. And if you know who Kali is, then it's exactly like I know that the authority in this kingdom is with the king, and I can ask a favor from the local mayor 
of this village. Because up till a certain point, the mayor has the warrant and the attribute to grant some favors. And I don't need to bother the king for huge fame, for some favors, which the mayor can give them to me in five minutes. And that's why asking favors from the mayor, it doesn't mean that you ignore the king or that you despise the king. You know that the king is there and you can ask something from the mayor, understanding perfectly the hierarchical relationship. That's why in the true tantric tradition of India and Tibet, there is no problem because all these symbolic images, they are not meant to replace the symbol of the cosmic consciousness. Every tantric practitioner understands very, very well what, where the place of Kali is and what is the place of the cosmic consciousness. And once you have this clarity, then you don't, you don't have any infringement of this law that it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You can meditate with Kali without offending God in any way. If you know who they are and what their relationship is. So, that just to make it uh, simple and clear, because this clarity of Jesus in some people produces a sort of a fanaticism. Okay, I love Jesus because he's uncompromising. He's black and white. He's really, he makes things really simple. And then, so, and then he said you should not do this. So when Agama is teaching some Kali initiation or some Matangi initiation, I won't go because that, that's dubious. That sounds like some sort of double value. You know, they say one thing and they do another thing or what the heck is all this. Just for you to understand that there is no contradiction there, because again, Matangi is not God. But in some situations of life, you resort to lower authorities when the solution which you are seeking is a simple solution of some sort. And you don't disturb the king for a job which is done by the mayor or by some minister in that kingdom. So it's the same thing here. There is a wisdom there is a ecological and there is a sort of ergonomical wisdom in the tantric tradition that you perform the effort that you have to perform and you don't do useless things there. And finally, the third and the last temptation is very interesting because the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This was allegedly the highest building there. So he would sit on the corner of a high building. And then the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Because it is written and the devil quotes from a prophet, twisting the words of the prophet, saying, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So like the aim, God would protect Jesus because Jesus is meant to do something really big. So the devil says, if you are really the son of God, why don't you test it a little bit? Because maybe you are schizophrenic and you are just, you are just imagining. It's the doubt, right? This is a projection of the doubt that in the mind of Jesus, he goes like, Oh my God, you know, am I really going to do this? Like he, he foresees. And then he says, am I not crazy? Am I not suffering from megalomania? 
you know, am I really going to go that far? Am I going to do what I see I'm going to do? And then if his doubt is, maybe I'm not, maybe I should first test. It's like the thing which I laughingly say sometimes. One of the reasons for which governments in the West have forbidden LSD, they put the LSD on the forbidden substance list, is they said because there were some people who took LSD and they thought they could fly. And they threw themselves off a high building and they crashed, of course, and they died. So they said LSD is a dangerous substance because it gives to people crazy delusions. There's been a great comic of America. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I don't know why I can't remember right now his name. Bill Hicks. Hicks, exactly, Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks makes a joke about this and he says, why forbid LSD for this? There was a few idiots who took LSD and then they tried to fly off a building. He said, good. Humanity is a few idiots less. We have some natural selection. He said, if you would be a logical person and if you would take LSD and if you would feel that I can fly, wouldn't you try to take off from the curb? From the street, you know, like if I can fly, let's take off just 30 centimeters, a little bit, you know, and if I can see that I can cope with it, then I can go from a high building as well. No, like whoever doesn't do that isn't that an idiot. So if they threw themselves off a building, isn't humanity better off? You know, it's like it's good that the idiot people throw themselves off the building. You know, maybe LSD is a sort of a natural selection to select the idiots so that they die and the intelligent, reasonable people stay. So in the same way, here, it's the same doubt. Like, why would you have that? I have had a colleague who was doing yoga, and then he discovered, we discovered that this man was schizophrenic. He didn't know it. It was triggered then. Because for those of you who don't know, schizophrenia is a disease which appears most often between 20 and 30 years of age. It's usually between 20 and 25. It emerges. So that's why it happens very often. The schizophrenics are highly intelligent people, usually. And it happens to people who are in university. The percentage of college and university students who turn schizophrenic is very big. Because that's when it happens in life. Between 20 and 25 years of age. And usually that's the time when you finish your university or some studies. And this schizophrenic young man, he was doing tons of yoga. And it didn't help him, because he was damaged and he, nobody knew to give him a simple program to try to help him in another way. And he had the feeling that Jesus loves him, that he bears the mark of Jesus. He was so convinced by it that he took a razor blade and cut a cross on his forehead. He cut himself on the forehead really deep to the bone, and he had a cross, a bleeding cross on his forehead. And then he had the clear feeling that if he jumps from the floor of his building, he was on the first floor, on the, in Europe we put first floor, the next one is the ground floor and then the first floor. So that's what I'm talking, the one above the ground floor. That he would, if he would jump from there, even like in a swimming pool, like even head forward, if he would die, he would be totally unharmed. So this guy cut on his forehead and bleeding abundantly, opened the window, and he jumped just like this, down it was cement, it was a cement yard. Indeed, funny enough the power of the demons. He didn't break a single bone. He was completely unharmed. Of course, ten minutes later, the 
nurses came and they put him in a straitjacket and they took him to the hospital and they gave him medication and electric shocks and whatever they gave him because he was gone completely. He was a nutcase. So he felt this need, which exactly is what Jesus doesn't do and advises you not to do. If this young man would have read this carefully, he would have known that it's a no-no. Like you don't test the power of God. You say, if I am indeed under your protection, you have to show it to me. That's your problem because you lack faith. You have doubts. And you try to solve your doubts by forcing the divine consciousness to make a miracle for you. Now. Here. And the thing which you, some of you may know already and others don't, is that the divine consciousness, Shiva, God, Allah, Jehovah, call it whatever you want, hates to make demonstrations. Hates and avoids it as much as possible. Only when there is a historical moment, like Jesus has to come in the world and kick the ass of the Roman Empire and of the Jewish priests and whatever, then it happens. Because then it's God's order. But in the rest of the time, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And when mystical people, they can do one and make it not very visible and get away with it, like people say, did that really happen? Yes. Can you demonstrate it? No. Because God doesn't want to be caught red-handed. He doesn't want to be caught like, oh, I have a proof. I have a proof. There will never be a proof. God wishes that there should not be any proof. So the only thing which decides is this, is your soul. Your soul decides without any proof. And because of that, it's, it's a law of the universe that you cannot coerce God into making any demonstration if he does not wish. It starts from the divine consciousness. And the human being has to believe blindly, or like on a blind day. It's a matter of those who have faith, they have it without any evidence. And then there is evidence, but you cannot put the finger on it. There is a ridiculous... It's not a coincidence that I call it ridiculous because it's called religious. There's a ridiculous documentary made by Bill Mahler, an American Jewish skeptic materialist, and he calls it religious, like religious people are ridiculous. And he's trying, and of course he interviews some truckers from America, some of these big fat manipulistic truckers, who are like very blue collar, very low life, like redneck type of people, and of course he is an intelligent New York comic, stand-up comedian, and he makes mincemeat out of them, you know, like their faith is so primitive that he ironizes it in very intellectual, you know, the, the sort of uh, uh, intellectual uh, Jewish New York uh, intellectual, Woody Allen type of humor and stuff, and he makes it up, and then he gets to a point where there is a guy who is a Jew himself, and who is a Christian. He had converted to Christianity. And he asks him, how did you become Christian? And he describes this guy, honestly, described who is much more intelligent and educated, the, the Jewish guy, who is the owner of a museum of artifacts or something like this. Uh, he is... Uh, 
telling him some incredible story. And uh, the climax of that story is that after he has one demonstration, two demonstrations, three demonstrations, like he was lucky God was smiling on him, then he simply freaks out and he says, look, I will believe in you, Jesus, as Jesus, if, like, it was no sign of it outside. Like, right now it's a cloudy day. And if it would start raining in two minutes, you would not consider it any proof. But that was a clear day. So he says, I would believe in you, Jesus, if right now, right now, not in three minutes, right now, I take my hand out of the window and it rains on it. And the guy, very manipulistic, he just pulls the hand out of the window and it starts raining on it, big time. Not just a few drops. It really starts raining out of the blue. And then he says, that's when I got convinced. You should see Bill Mahler. Bill Mahler, who is trying to prove him ridiculous, is like the devil that got a slap on the face. He's so frustrated, he says, but you cannot say anything because of that. It doesn't demonstrate anything. He's like, sure, go eat shit somewhere else. No, it's like for him it's enough. But when you don't want to believe, you don't want to believe. And people have this thing, if there is God, God should demonstrate himself to me. I have bad news for those of you who expect that. It's never going to happen. Never. It's by law that it's not happening. Because you are not supposed to be healthy. It happened to this Jewish guy in this documentary. I hardly understand why or how. Again, it may be, but it's a story which is one in a million. And generally, it doesn't happen. There are stories, there are others and others, which are always leaving a margin of skepticism. What if it was a coincidence? What if it was a coincidence? And the story goes on like this. That's why you will never catch God red-handed. Like coming and making a demonstration which will convince from Alpha to Omega, everybody and everything. It's not happening because it's not meant to happen. Because part of the human evolution is exactly having this task that you, that you solve your doubts. That you free your soul and your soul becomes the ruler of your being, and you listen to your soul. You listen to this spiritual intuition. And that's why it's not meant to happen. And the devil is asking Jesus, like, you know, if now you started believing you are the Son of God. So you're just going to go out there and change the world. But shouldn't you try, like an LSD idiot, Shouldn't you just jump off the temple and see if the, if the angels save you? Then you will land softly, and then you will be ready to start your mission. See, the devil is not asking anything for himself this time. He simply says, why don't you verify? And Jesus realizes that verifying is akin to doubting. It still means that he is believing not 100%. He is not 100% and he needs some sort of physical demonstration. There will be none. And Jesus, who is aware of this, he says very clearly, Jesus answers, it has been said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
This is what I'm telling to all of you. Because it's a mistake which is often done. People say, if God loves me, then He will do that. That's what you get when you say that. That's what you get. You, get, you cannot force God to do something for you. Ah, there is an art of prayer that you can humbly pray. And prayer is a whole methodology in bhakti yoga and in mysticism. And prayer does not mean always that things happen when you want and how you want. And sometimes when things happen with prayer, then you don't know what happened. For example, your child is sick and dying and the doctors have given up and you pray to God and say, you are the last resort, please save my child. I humbly ask, please, 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 please save my child. You know, take 10 years of my life, then whatever. I know I'm humbly asking you, please, please do this for my child and so on. Does it work? You don't know. Then some friend comes from Bali and he has a rare herb from Bali or from Tibet. And he says, oh, this could work for this cancer your child is suffering. And you give the herb to the child. And the child is healed in three days. Then you don't know. Was it God or was it the herb? Like, did God may create this? And then you ask, why did God need to produce a herb from Bali? when God could have simply made like this, and the child would have been healthy. But he's a tricky bastard. He created a circumstance where a herd from Bali comes, and then you are in doubt. You say, was it the herd from Bali, or was it God? Precisely because he doesn't want you to see him 100%. Only by intuition. Like you have the intuition that this was the divine mercy. But you cannot bloody demonstrate. You want, you would love to demonstrate it. And you would like to show it to the rest of the world. My God, look, it's working, it's working. All of you, please start praying. Start praying. There was a story in the 1970s when the Skylab fell. The Skylab was the first orbital station planted by NASA. And they created a space laboratory called Skylab. And because it was poorly calculated and was in the beginning of the cosmic age of humanity, after a few years it hit some more dense layers of air up in the ionosphere and it started reducing the speed. So the NASA experts announced in 1973 or something, they said Skylab is going to fall. When? In one year and a half, if our calculations are correct. Or in six months or something. It was published in American media in newspapers, in television, and of course it came to Europe, it came, we knew about it, even in Eastern Europe, it was known that a huge, the heaviest, was a huge satellite with some atomic thing on it for power, you know, a mini nuclear reactor on it for energy, it was 50 tons or something, it was a real big thing, or 5 tons maybe, I'm exaggerating, it was about to fall. And the funny thing that the orbit of the sky left was passing over many big cities, including New York and others, like it was. And then the NASA people came up with a thing which because of the law of silence, it was forgotten. Like it's for, but only the parapsychologists know it. 
the NASA people are very open-minded. They were speaking with Devendra Brahmachari and other big yogis and so Not about this, but about everything in health and vitality and so on. And they were trying to find out. And because they were open-minded, engineers and geniuses and inventors and so on, they said, what can we use to stop this skylab from falling on some inhabited area? Is there any way of bringing it down quickly? Or how can we do that? And they simply didn't find any way. And the only answer, because they made a national survey, they asked all the universities, it came from an American university which had a chair of parapsychology. There was a professor in parapsychology. And this guy told them, only with the power of the mind you can do it, but you need a lot of people, because none of you is Jesus Christ. And because you don't have the mental power of Milarepa or of this, you will need a lot of people. So the Americans did it. They published, NASA simply said, we are at our wit's end, Skylab is falling in three months, and there is no way in which we have tried everything, there's no way where we can control it. And therefore, we are asking you, let's do a parapsychological experiment. And they gave a day and an hour, and they said on the 20th of March, at 8 o'clock in the evening, everybody in America and in the whole world who wants they should concentrate for one minute that Skylab falls in an uninhabited area. Visualize it and say it in your mind that the Skylab falls in an uninhabited area. One minute. It is, it is evaluated that approximately two million people did that one minute. Like they stopped wherever they were and they simply did this. The Skylab fell into the ocean. Is that a demonstration? No, because any skeptical would say, eh, but by the theory of probability, there was a probability of 60% of it falling in an uninhabited area. Good. So you still haven't demonstrated the power of the mind, the existence of God, or anything like this. The law of silence is still working perfectly. So, that's why I say, Jesus says it very clearly. Don't put the Lord thy God to test. Like you say, some people say, we can pick up poisonous snakes, rattlesnakes. We can walk on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's against the principle which was before Jesus, because Jesus didn't invent it. Jesus just quoted it. And he says, it has been said, even if you have the power to deal with poisonous snakes, and you think they won't bite you because you are protected by the Holy Spirit, even if you have the power to walk on fire, don't do it asking it from God. Don't do it in the name of God. That is provoking. It says here, don't put the Lord your God to test. Like God hates to be tested, and He will usually give you a slap over the head. A big one. It even happened the other way around. Today I was laughing with somebody remembering that when they launched the Titanic, the famous Titanic, they said even God cannot sink the Titanic. So many coincidences happened and it sunk on the first on the first trip. So like don't put God to test. You are, let's say, a young man practicing Tantra. 
and you say, now I really control my sexual energy. Next day you will probably have an accident and ejaculate accidentally. Because you are dragging too much. You are provoking. It's like you are putting God to test in an indirect way, if you understand, because yet it's the other way around. It's an indirect way. So that's why in spirituality it is said very clearly, don't put God to test. I think it is André van Lisbeth who quotes the ridiculous story in the 60s when he was in India learning yoga, or 50s even, he was before the hippie age in India, and there was a big yogi in Bombay who got completely irritated by the skepticism of the new Indian newspapers, and he was the protege of a very rich industrialist from Bombay who had seen it happening, and he simply called, made a press conference with 200 journalists in which he would demonstrate live levitation. He would simply fly in the air in front of everybody to show them it's possible. 200 people came. The setting was uh, grand. They made a floating platform on a swimming pool. Like he was on a swimming pool and people were on the edge in with uh, this kind of chairs like this, you know. 200 people and he was alone on, the, on a floating platform on a swimming pool and he was about to float and go above the water. And guess what? When the minute came, he could not do it. The power disappeared from him. Something or somebody took that power away from him. Suddenly he couldn't do it. And he tried for 15 minutes until the journalist started rumor like this guy is wasting our time. What's going, when is it going to happen? Like, when and when he realized that he is making a fool of himself, then he tried to demonstrate another city without any warning. He tried to walk on water. Because he knew he could do that, he had tried it. And in the moment when he put his foot on water, like an axe, like a piece of metal, boom, he went directly to the bottom of the pool. So again, bummer. This is not about God, but this is about the wall of silence. The wall of silence, which is an expression of this, that some things, you'll say, but how did Jesus do what he did? Because God told him, go and do this, go and do this, go and do this, and then he did. He had a warrant, he had a badge on his chest, which said, I am a marshal of law, of divine law, and I can do some things in the name of God. This, this, this. And then they asked him, do more. And he said, no, I cannot, because God didn't ask me to do more. I did what my Father in Heaven asked me to do. That's all you are going to get. So it was a measure. Of course you can say, well, if you would have done another 20, you know, what if when they called him in front of the Jewish priest to condemn him to crucifixion, he would have started to fly to the air and show rainbows and, you know, put everybody in a state of hypnosis and... Everybody would have been knocked out. But he didn't do that. Because God did not go that far. That demonstration was not supposed to be given. So that the doubt could still be there. Is this guy real or not? It's 50-50. So, in this way, Jesus is trying to... I'm sorry, the devil is trying to tempt Jesus to do something to put God to test. And Jesus knows very well that one should not do that. You don't put God to test. You don't say, I shall eat poison, and I'll demonstrate to you that God 
uh, will uh, rid me you know, and save me. Never. Ah, Apostle Paul was bitten by a viper. Not with him wanting it or looking for it. And although he was bitten by a deadly snake, he did not die. And then people were amazed. Like this guy was bitten. We saw him bitten by a, by a viper. No? And he did not die. That's a miracle. No? But that he didn't ask for it to happen. It happened simply from above. It came as a coincidence. But if Paul would have taken the viper and bit himself, he would have probably died. He would have got, so to speak, God angry. Because you simply don't do that. You don't put God to test. Many people, because they are lacking faith, they want to put God to test. They want to jump from the first floor to see if they are unharmed. Don't do that, ever. If you have problems with your faith, work on your Ajna Chakra. Practice more. Go deeper into your spirituality and find your faith. But don't put God to test. Because God is too big to be tested on such minor issues. Like, oh, I need it to see. Yeah, you need it, but that's not the way to solve that problem. So in this way, the same thing is valid in every other possible way. God is love. Then you don't put love to test. There is this silly game which says, if you love me, you would do this. I find it incorrect. Because you don't tell to God, God, if you love me, then you give me this. You make me beautiful. You give. That's not the way he deals with love. And that's why even with human beings, we don't put love to test. If you love me, you take off your clothes right now. That's the answer. No? It's like this, you are not testing love. You are not testing God. Because they are way too sacred. These are divine things. And they have to be cherished like something which is very precious. So Jesus is tempted, like, okay, make sure, let's make sure, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, either I believe in this, or I don't believe in this. I don't do tests. I'm not putting God to test. And then again, like Bill Hicks, you know, if I were to test God, I would try to go on the ground floor and take off gently, you know, not throw myself off the top of a temple. That's madness. That's lack of common sense. Why would I do that? And thus, this, this is the story of the temptation, which is formidable, because it teaches us it's about us. These tests are for us. These tests are about us. This is what's happening to the human being. Jesus didn't really need those tests. But they needed to be shown to the world in that way. Even Jesus didn't need to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist realized it. And he said, I cannot tie the shoes or the sh your shoelaces. And you want me to say, I need baptism from you. It's like, are you crazy? You come to be baptized by me, but I'm just a slave compared to what you are. No? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's pretend, let's do things the right way. Like people come to you to get baptized. 
Right now, I'm Mr. Nobody. Nobody knows who I am. So I get baptized by you. Like in humbleness, you know, why should I pretend that I'm special and suddenly reverse the thing? Ah, after I've raised people from the graves and I've killed the blind and the lepers, then it will be different. Then the world will know. Then my message will be out. But right now, why shouldn't we do things in the proper order? That's why there is this humbleness which he takes. And he, he gets tested and then he's ready to go. And as he is ready to go, he one of the first things which he does, which I don't think it's a mistake, I cannot label it as a mistake, I can label it more like verifying a principle and showing it to the whole world. He goes home. You remember that he was born in uh, Bethlehem, but actually his family lived later, they went to Egypt, and when they came back, they settled down in a city in the northern part of today's Israel, which is called Nazareth. So that's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth, because as a child, he came from the village of Nazareth. And what does he do? He goes back to Nazareth, like to see mom, you know, to kind of say, hey guys, I'm back. And guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm greatly improved. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not who you knew I was. <coughs> and... He starts, therefore, his public mission with a bomb. It's going to be a bummer. It's going to be a fiasco. But there is a huge lesson in this. Let's hear the story and see what do we extract out of it as mind, as resonance, as yoga, as energies. What does this story tell us? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Right now he was in power and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everybody praised him. So now he was on a roll. But he was going through Galilee and he was going towards Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So it, it was a habit that when the service was done on the Sabbath day in the Jewish synagogues, every adult man in the community had the right to read from the prophets and from the scriptures. It was a sort of established constitutional right to stay like this of the Jewish male citizens that they were allowed to touch and to read the sacred texts in this way, getting familiar with them and saying, I'm a member, a full member of this community. And this new young man comes, he was not so young anymore, he was 30, which in those days was more than today, than what 30 is today, because people lived shorter lives. And he was 30 and he goes there and they gave him the prophet Isaiah, which may, many of you don't know. But the prophet Isaiah is one of the Jewish prophets that speaks mostly about Jesus. There can be found references about Jesus in approximately 12 prophets of Israel before. Some of them just a few lines where they spoke about the Messiah who would come, and some of them abundantly. Isaiah is probably the most abundant of them. Like the prophet Isaiah had visions of the future. He had lived 300 years before or so, and he had visions of the future. He could see in the future when the Messiah will come. And he described with a language like Nostradamus. 
He described in a very oblique, prophetic language, not like an engineering language. He described in a very metaphoric, like a madman, like a drunken man was speaking. He just said a lot of things about that thing, about the, that, those circumstances and about the Messiah. So it's not a coin, it's a very wonderful divine synchronicity that as he went first time in his mission, they gave him to read out of Isaiah, which was speaking about him. Isaiah was speaking about Jesus. And he unrolled it and he read exactly a capital statement, which is a capital statement where it's exactly like you'd ask Jesus, who are you? And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, this is a fantastic statement where he says, I am anointed, I am the one who is sent by God. Of course, many, uh, many of the statements are metaphorical, to preach good news to the poor. But his message is not only for the poor. The poor is the poor in spirit, and the fact that people have a stupid karma, and they are living in ignorance, and they are miserable and suffering in samsara, and then in a metaphoric way, people are poor, actually. They are poor compared to the people from Shambhala, even the richest king on earth is poor. He's just a poor miserable. So to preach to the poor, it doesn't mean a socialistic, Marxistic, ground rule, grassroots revolution, that Jesus is a sort of revolutionary who wants to put down the rich and to speak to the poor. It's not a social revolution. It's a spiritual thing that he's talking about. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Who are the prisoners? Everybody. Everybody is a prisoner in Maya and Samsara. So he doesn't speak about talking to the people who are in jail. He speaks about the prisoners are... Isaiah is speaking poetically, metaphorically, in parables. So Isaiah says, he's, he puts words, you know, and he speaks in the name of this Messiah that he sees. And he quotes saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I've been sent to give this and this, give, recover the sight of the vine, release the oppressed. Who is the oppressed? You can say the, the Jews were oppressed because the Romans were ruling over Judea. But no, you are oppressed by the devil. You are oppressed by ignorance. You are oppressed by the dark forces. You are oppressed by the fact that you live in a world where there is cancer and there is war and there is violence and there is like... That's the oppression, you know? So it's like to talk to the oppressed is again, it's not a social message. It's metaphorically used there. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like a metaphor for the time of grace has come. So it's okay. He reads from one of the prophets. But then he splashes it totally. Because he is Jesus and he can't stop himself from being like pumped. Like, if you would be a diplomat, if you would be a politician, a spiritual politician, you would say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Like, I'm reading from the prophets. What do you want? I'm reading from the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
then you wouldn't do what Jesus did next. Because it's simply too much. You would hesitate. You would say, come on, these people will eat me alive if I do this. But Jesus is the kind of person who is uncompromising. Like, he started his mission, he's about to floor it completely, and as he floors it, there is no fear from the moment one. And he says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fasting on him and began to be saying to them, and he began by saying to them, like, after you read, you are free to make some comments if you want. It's the right, it was considered that it was the right of the Jews to comment on the prophets, to say, my opinion is that this is wonderful, or something. And then Jesus tells them the following crazy sentence. He says, today, this scripture was fulfilled in your hearing. It's insane, because he simply says, it's happening, and I am it. Either you have to be schizophrenic, or you have to be it. Because no person with common sense and decency would dare to say such a thing. Anywhere on the face of the... Either you are totally crazy, and then of course you have no responsibility to talk nonsense, or if you are a little bit of a reasonable person, you have to think not twice probably a hundred times before you say such a word. Because basically this man is reading about the Messiah and the Son of God and say today it's done. In front of your eyes, in your hearing. It's, it just had happened here and now, right now. It starts. Of course you can imagine clearly that it freaked people out. Even the mechanism is described. Or spoke well of him, like they were still under the influence, and it's like, uh, yeah, but then they started dawning on them, it's, they started realizing what the man had said, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? This is where the shit starts. If this man would have come from India or from Kashmir, if he would have come from Egypt, they would have said, it was strange, today this guy came and took the words of Isaiah, and he said, this is it. Right now, here and now, this is it. And like some of us believed, some of us were doubting, it was really scary. But these people, what do they do? They say, isn't this the son of Joseph? Like, how do you put down Jesus? By calling him the son of Joseph. Like, it's a boy who grew up 15 years ago here. We knew him. We saw him eating the falafels or whatever they were eating in those days, you know? We saw him eating the, like, what, this is the Messiah? Like, people can't believe it. The Dalai Lama, in an interview, he had a wonderful remark because people were asking him about enlightenment. And the Dalai Lama is very slippery when he talks about enlightenment. He doesn't want to go there too much, and for a variety of reasons, out of which probably the first is modesty, is humbleness, you know? and they ask him something, like, how do you, and then the Dalai Lama said an amazing thing, he said, sometimes I'm visited 
by my mother. And I'm what I'm visiting my parents. And he said, then he said, he started laughing and he said, if you want to know how enlightened you are, just go visit your family. <laughs> because there is nothing more terrible than the family to put down any sort of enlightenment in anybody. Because the family cannot figure out for a second that you have become something else. That the cocoon, the worm in the cocoon, has turned into a butterfly. They can't see the butterfly. For them you are still a worm. And they don't understand the why do you claim to be a butterfly. And they know, come on, didn't you like falafels? And why does that mean that I'm less enlightened? Because people immediately bring up all the familiar things, and especially the flaws, especially the uh, little funny stories. Where didn't you fall or didn't you piss in your pants when you're... Yeah, probably Jesus pissed in his pants when he was a child. That doesn't make him less of the Son of God. But for the people in the village and in the family, and the people, they say, isn't this the stupid son of Joseph? Even if the son, even if as a child, he may have been a special child. But he was just a child. In Romania, when the peasants speak about a child, they have a pejorative expression. They talk about child, they say that child is like a piece of shit with two eyes screwed on. Not like the snowman, you know, you put two pieces of coal on a boulder of snow and it becomes a snowman. And you put a camera, you know. So they say a child is like a turd with two eyes. You know, because it's not a human being yet. As a citizen, he is. But he doesn't know shit about the world. He has to be educated, grown up, taught a lot of skills. And then slowly, slowly, when he's 16 years old, 18 years old or something, he becomes an actual human being, a functional human being. Until then, he can't even gather his own food. It's his mom and his dad who have to feed him, wash him, and then he's helpless and so on. So this is exactly like this. These people say, we saw this guy when he was a turd with two eyes on. And now he says, the power of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the prophecy is fulfilled. Like it's too much. The family... And the people who have known you, they are the last ones, if ever, to acknowledge everything. That's why Garanda Sampita says, if you want to practice yoga and reach enlightenment, go in another country. Go in a foreign land where nobody knows you. Because those people, they meet you after 10 years of yoga, they see you are something. But the people from your own village and from your own family, they will refuse to see it because they are blinded by too many memories, and they have a sort of anti-belief. They believe not. They believe that no, 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 absolutely no. <laughs> it was the same with Buddha. When he started preaching the noble truth, when he reached enlightenment, he preached it to some monks, to some yogis, who he knew from before. And they were very difficult to convince because they said, hey, we know you since you are a shithead. You were a little kid in the forest trying to do meditation and now you come and preach to us and you don't even do tapasya anymore. You are really, really good with your tapasya and now you are just coming with this middle path and so on. They were very difficult to convince simply because they knew him when he was weak. They knew him when he was not 
people are capable to meet a master and to say, okay, I acknowledge the Dalai Lama is a great man. But if you knew him from childhood, you would have a slightly diminishing view on him, precisely because you knew him from childhood. So, Jesus said to them that uh, Jesus realized, these guys are going to give me the finger. And he told them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Like, we heard you are a great man and you did great speeches and maybe some miracle or something do. And then they will say, well, uh, well uh, do something, show us something. I tell you the truth, he continues. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Remember this. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's a law. Like when Jesus puts it in this way, you can see that it's almost a law. It's a cosmic law. Like most of the people that did something, they did it somewhere else. Not in the same place where they were born and raised. Yogananda taught yoga in America. Swami Shivananda was from Malaysia and he taught yoga in India. Like very often people were not from there. Even Ramakrishna, he was born in a village and he did, he became a great master in Calcutta. Not in the village where he was born. And the list could continue forever and ever. So he simply told them, I know that you don't want to acknowledge me, like you say, I'm the, I'm the carpenter's son. You know? And for you, that's your truth. You simply refuse to see what I have become, what I have woke up to. I'm not the carpenter's son anymore. That was a dream which you lived 20 years ago. Now I'm something else. But he says, I realize you won't do it because your brainwashing is too strong. And he says, no prophet is recognizing his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He quotes things from the story. The story with Elijah is that there was a crazy prophet many centuries before Jesus called Elijah. And Elijah had a great, great paranormal power. And he did a very crazy thing. There was a local king who was not religious. And he said, because this king is a blasphemer and this and this, then he said, I give a prayer that it should not walk, it should not rain until you wake up and you throw, overthrow him and change your mind. And in Israel, if it's not raining for three years, you can as well dig your graves and prepare for death. Or you have to emigrate. It's a desert, and if you don't have a rain now and then, you're out. And it didn't rain for three years and a half. What a crazy prophet this guy was. He could stop the rain for years in a row, just by prayer, just by his mind, you know. And uh, there were some widows, there were people who were having a problem. And he said he was not sent to any of them. He was sent to somebody far away. Like he went to somebody who was an outsider of that community. He was not a prophet in his home community. He was a prophet for somebody who didn't know him and was open-minded 
He said, maybe, maybe. And there were many in Israel with leprosy by in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian, a guy who was not from the Jewish community, was Syrian, from Syria. And this guy, Naaman the Syrian, he got healed by Elisha the prophet. Why didn't Elisha heal a few Jews if he was a Jewish prophet in a Jewish community? Because the Jews were saying, ah, this is the son of the carpenter. Okay. To you, I'm the son of the carpenter. This man believes in me. I can heal him of leprosy. That's the very important because Jesus later, he says, he plays dumb when people ask him something and he says, do you think I can do that? And he's testing them. And they say, yes, you are the son of God. And then he says, your faith has saved you. Because if you believe that I can do it, then you are asking the grace of God through me, and you are empowering me to give it to you. And the other said, you are the son of the carpenter. Are we really that good? Not really. We can smile together. I play dumb. You are dumb. Let it stay like this, you know? It's like, it's because there is no faith. Where is the faith? He simply said, you guys have no faith. And exactly as Elijah preferred to heal somebody outside of the community, and exactly as Elisha healed a guy who was not a Jew, although there were many other people with leprosy around, exactly in the same way, he said, you will not get it from me. Out of all the cities in Israel, Nazareth is the punished one. Nazareth is the most stupid city, precisely because I was grown up there, and you are blinded by that, you can't see it. Everybody in Galilee and in Jerusalem believed, but these people from Nazareth, they could not, because they knew him from his childhood. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Why were they furious? Because it's a demonic reaction. He pricked them. He just put the finger on the sore spot. He told them, this is your pride. The people don't like to hear this. Jesus couldn't care less. He was telling to people also what they didn't want to hear. And he simply, and they got angry. That's the reaction. The reaction is a demonic reaction of anger. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. The bastards wanted to kill him. Like they considered him a blasphemer by now. Like it was too much. Too much. This is the son of the carpenter who now pretends it, and he is giving us lessons and he tells us it's our fault because, you know, and he says he's going to give us the finger and, oh my God, I can't, we can't take that. Then they get angry. The Tibetans, they have the ten painless crimes, you know, the ten worst things that you can do for your karma. One of them, not necessarily the first, is to kill your mother. Because your mother, good or bad, she is the first guru. She taught you how to eat, she taught you how to wipe your ass, she taught you all the things which make you not be a monkey and be a human being. So the mother in India is the first guru. If you don't like your mother, go away. Go away. Move to another continent. You can leave her. But you are not supposed to go against her. Not especially in this way, to kill her. So, by no means. 
if you do that, it's terrible. No? And one of the those ten big, big things which are there is to shed the blood of a Buddha. Like a Buddha, imagine that somebody would have killed Buddha. What a loss this would have been for this planet. Buddha was needed by God. Shambhala needed Buddha to live and do his thing. And if you kill Buddha, it's a horrendous karma. It's a huge religious offense. That's why later when Jesus himself was crucified, he prayed that the people who crucified him shouldn't be given the negative karma. He prayed and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And these are just a bunch of drunk Roman soldiers. And they are crucifying the Son of God. If they should be punished for this, they would not come out of hell for a hundred million years. You know? So he said, I can't hold it against them because they are just ignorant. Said, Forgive them. Don't put this in their book, in their account, because it's going to completely annihilate them. So in the same way, these people, how crazy they were, because when they got so angry, this is the demonic reaction, they got so angry that now they wanted to punish Jesus to the point of throwing him off a cliff, which was a way of killing people. They wanted to kill him. Like, are we talking about rabid dogs or human beings? By the way, this was a boy who had grown up in their community. And this boy is coming home and saying, I am the new Buddha. Yeah, man, go to the doctor, seek help. You know, it's like, why would you want to kill him? And he's telling him, you know, it's like, you can't because of this and this, and you are possessed. And you know, that pisses them off. People are so angry to be shown their demonic side, to be shown their blindness. And usually the demons strike back. And they want revenge because they have been exposed and there has been this moment. And thus, the people got unnaturally angry at Jesus, the people from his own town. He didn't insult them. He simply said, he simply said his thing. It's, it's kind of decent, what he said, but it was not decent for them. And they wanted to throw him off the cliff, and the last sentence is beautiful. He says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then something paranormal happened. This kind of attitude and energy is known. When I was beginning yoga, I learned from somebody in the environment of yoga where I was that if you go in the nighttime in dangerous parts of town, there were dangerous parts of Bucharest in those days, and if you would go at 3 o'clock in the morning in some really unhealthy part of the town, you risk to be mugged, raped, beaten, something. It was, there were places which were dangerous, especially at some hours of the night. And then uh, I was put in the situation together with one of my friends and together with one of the girlfriends of us sometimes, which made it worse, to walk at very unhealthy hours like this because I had a crazy yoga teacher and I was entertaining the company of this yoga teacher until like one o'clock in the night. He was telling us about yoga. We had discussions which were amazing, radical. You know, like they, This is the time which changed my life enormously. This was revolution time. So I was eating with bread and butter 
any minute that I could have with my guru, you know, asking questions and so on. And sometimes I forgot about time and so on. We, I, we stayed until 1 o'clock, 1.30. At that time in a communist capital in 1980s, there were no night buses. I was a student in the university and I didn't have money for taxis. And the taxis were very few and very rare. There was no public transportation. So basically it happened many times that I simply had to walk 10 kilometers to home. You know, like in the other side of Bucharest or something. I had to walk for one hour till home. Very often with my friend. And sometimes when going through the city, you would encounter gangs. Night gangs, gypsy gangs and others. For most of you who don't come from Eastern Europe, the gypsies are very lovely people who drive horse carriages and so on. In communist Romania, they are hardened criminals who did not hesitate to mutilate children and turn them into beggars. Make them beg like they would steal your child, cut its arms and legs, and put it on the street to beg. So the people, no, so they were people who did inconceivable things inconceivably bad things already at that time. And so we'd meet with them. And if you had a girl with you also, then the danger was ten times bigger. And we are wondering, like, I don't want to stop seeing my teacher, but what do you do? Like, what's the yoga solution for this? And somebody who was more advanced in the yoga, he said you should focus on Sahasrara. Because these people cannot resonate on Sahasrara. The Sahasrara is zero. And if you move all your energy in Sahasrara, as you walk, and keep it as you walk, for them you will become like a ghost. Like they won't really see you, it's like you, you are from a parallel universe. They, they don't really interact with you, because they always want to feel your fear on Mulakara. They want to feel your anger on Manipura. They want to do a ping pong with you, so that they get challenged, and then they come on to you. But if you go in Sahasrara, it's like you become like transparent. It's like you are made of glass. They can't hit anything in you. Like they, can't, they can't talk to you. It's like you don't exist to them. And I did it a couple of times and it worked exactly like that. Like I, I passed through some people. I don't know, I was with a girl or something. And then I heard the gypsies. There was a gang of gypsies. Not all of the gangs were gypsies. But I heard in this case there were the gypsies. After I passed two meters, I was two meters beyond them, and one of them scolded the other. He said, Why didn't you hit them? Like they were asking each other, Why didn't they hit me? Because none of them had the impulse to start it, to, to make the first step. Because I was in Samasrana, I was keeping my Samasrana, and I was not focusing on any chakra. I was taking all my energy, and I was like ghost like. It's exactly what Jesus does here. That's how we know. Because this is done in the world of yoga. Jesus simply put himself in a certain state of consciousness. And then the, the Bible says he walked through the crowd and went away. Like these people wanted to kill him. And they were an angry mob. And somehow it didn't work. Not because Jesus knew jujutsu. <laughs> he didn't practice self-defense. He just went in Sarasvara and went. Like this. It was like, if you want to put it, to compare it with something, it was almost like a collective hypnosis. Like, he put them in a state of mind, and then it's like, ah, what happened? Uh, didn't we want to kill that bastard? What is he? Oh, he left. Okay. Tough luck. I don't know how we lost him. 
Well, you should have punished that son of a bitch. Like, this is how it goes. It's simply another level of consciousness. And I know for sure that it's possible, again, because I've seen it a couple of times in action, and with Jesus this happens a couple of times. And very often the Bible says he did it because his time had not come. Like, Jesus had to do three years of noise, of rumble. And he did three years of rumble, and it was not his time to be killed in the first day when he appeared in Nazareth. Then you wouldn't have known about Jesus, and all that happened wouldn't have happened. And therefore he had the permission from God to kind of, yeah, push it. Yeah, these people are not. Push it a little bit. No, they are not going to get stopped in this. This is good. So then, Jesus, this is a little bit of a city that Jesus is using. Like, he's just going. He provokes them. He tells them to the face, you know, no prophet is prophet in his own hometown. He says, you expect miracles, but there will be no miracle for you because you have no faith. You believe I'm the son of the carpenter. And then when they get angry, he just walks through and goes. We don't know. Maybe some of those people later, they reconsidered. Maybe when Jesus in the next three years was around, maybe some people from Nazareth came and joined those crowds. Sometimes there are thousands of people around Jesus. So maybe some of them did. But at that time, Jesus confronted them frontally and he got this demonic reaction from them. He was not afraid, but this is exactly what's happening when you push when you floor it completely, that's the kind of reaction which results. So, we have seen this wonderful episode with the first time when Jesus appears and the famous story which he says about nobody is a prophet in his own hometown or as Dalai Lama says, if you want to see how enlightened you are, go home, go to your family and see how they treat you like shit, you know, and it's like totally confusing. And, um, then, the story with Jesus telling them the cosmic laws and regulations, as well as going through the crowds, and the crowds had no power over him. Everybody knows that an angry mob is a terrible thing, like so many people got lynched and killed by mobs. A mob which is furious is a terrible thing, but not in the case of Jesus. Jesus, even in that case, he could just... But then you say, why did he do it when he was crucified? Because then his time was up. He had to allow it to happen, and he allowed it to happen. There was another time. But until the time had come, it didn't happen. He had full control over these things. Enough of this. Let's stop for tonight. It's been a bit long again this night. I'll try to stop at a more reasonable hour, but I wanted to conclude the subject. So next Thursday we'll continue with more of how Jesus' actions can be understood, explained, metaphysically and logically. With this we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining and see you in the future.